Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suak Çubukçu. I'm a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute, and we have a special guest today, Professor Matthew White. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Um, Professor Light is an associate professor of criminology and sociolegal studies at University of Toronto. And he's also affiliated faculty at the Center for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies. And uh, Dr. Light studies migration control, policing, policing and criminal justice and public and citizen security and primarily in this post-Soviet region. And we are gonna talk about the ongoing war in Ukraine with Dr. Light. Dr. Dr. Light, I'd like to start with um, the question, especially with the war now raging at a full scale and Russia has ramped up assaults on Ukrainian cities. Um, what is the aim, what's the purpose of Putin uh, to issue with the invasion of Ukraine and what is his ultimate purpose in this war? Yes, um, thank you for that. I think it's become horribly clear that the goal of Putin is nothing less than to overthrow the government of Ukraine um, and to replace it with some other form of administration that is more to his liking. So uh, not long ago, although of course it, it seems like a very long time ago, we were discussing in the during the troop buildup on the Russian-Ukrainian border what Putin's plans might be, and a number of ideas were being debated, including that he might simply wish to occupy more of eastern Ukraine and perhaps connected to the Crimean Peninsula that he already occupied. Um, but clearly the onslaught that we're now witnessing is in, intended and, and frankly there's no sort of um, there's no sort of lack of clarity about it. Uh, Putin has been very um, has been very blatant in his statements, very very blunt in his statements that his goal is to as he put it denazify Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly ludicrous as a characterization of the Ukrainian government whose president is actually Jewish to call it Nazi, but um, I think calling it Nazi is meant to indicate that it's it's an unacceptable government that should not exist. And we now see a full-scale invasion um, with aerial bombardment of Ukrainian cities all over the country. So exactly what would follow um, in, in this hypothetical scenario in which, in which Putin manages to subdue um, the Ukrainian military and um, engineer either a capitulation of, of the Ukrainian state or at least to control most Ukrainian territory. I think that's still rather up in the air. Um, so um, it would be reasonable to assume or to suppose that at least some territory of what is now Ukraine would be annexed to the Russian Federation. So given that the Russian government has already recognized the independence of the um, separatist entities in Eastern Ukraine, the so-called Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Entirely, it's an entirely plausible scenario that they would then, um, quote unquote, ask to be integrated to the Russian Federation and would, th would thereupon be annexed. Um, it's also possible that Putin would wish to annex a much larger portion of what is now Ukraine to uh, the Russian Federation. Um, if not all of the country, perhaps, some significant portion of it um, to the east of the Dnieper River. Um, it's also been reported that, um, that the Russian government has brought the former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, to the Ukrainian border and may intend to install him as um, so-called president of Ukraine uh, in some portion of Ukrainian territory. Um, so I suppose to summarize what I was just saying, um, it seems likely that there will be some 
annexations of Ukraine um, in this scenario, and that even to the extent that some portion of what is now Ukraine um, was allowed to continue to exist formally as a state, it would be essentially a puppet regime um, like, like those controlled by the Axis during World War II or, or um, perhaps like the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe after World War II. Okay, so um, then what should be done to complicate Putin's aim from the war, like annexation of um, Ukraine and having a puppet state? So what should NATO and other Western countries should do? Well, it's a very difficult situation because mm -hmm. on the one hand, I think it has begun to sink in on many people, particularly in Europe, that the scenario that I just outlined would be a disastrous one, not only for the people of Ukraine, who I would like to emphasize would be the primary victims. You know, their, their state would be destroyed. Um, the democracy that they built over the last 30 years would be destroyed. Uh, many of them would probably be imprisoned or killed. But it would also be a disaster for all of Europe. It would essentially mean that, um, that the Russian Federation became a dominant power in Europe would signal that it was capable of um, uh, essentially um, subduing any opponent it wished to within Europe. Um, it would not necessarily mean the end of NATO, but I think it would be widely seen as a defeat for NATO. Um, um, certainly every part of Europe that was not in NATO would be under a light, great deal of, of threat. And even countries that are in NATO, I think would feel that they have to be much more accommodating toward Russian demands than they have been in the past. And we've seen in the last few months that um, Russia has been quite blunt about its wishes. So for example, um, there is a kind of a Northern theater of diplomatic and military maneuvering going on in, in um, the Scandinavian and Nordic region where uh, Russia has sent uh, very um, offensively worded statements to the Finnish and Swedish governments um, um, demanding that they forswear NATO membership and telling them that it would be considered an act of aggression should they wish to join NATO, um, conducting rather um, ominous military exercises in the Baltic. So all of this is to say that in the scenario that I outlined, I think um, it's clear that European security as a whole would be compromised and the effective independence of a number of European states would be open to question, um, particularly as the um, larger European countries such as Germany, France, and Italy would probably be even more tempted to kind of come to terms with a new uh, Russian dominated order. And um, that would be detrimental to the independence of um, smaller states in Europe. So um, I'm sorry, that was a rather roundabout way of approaching your question. So simply to kind of identify the stakes of the conflict, um, I think that there are people who are more qualified than I am to talk about the uh, details of military um, uh, operations. Um, to me, it seems like there is a very um, agonizing question about the advisability of NATO um, uh, providing what is referred to as a no-flight zone or an air exclusion zone over Ukraine to try to prevent uh, Russian aerial bombardment of Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian civilian populations. Um, I think the argument for that is that it would essentially um, allow the Ukrainian military to have a fighting chance, um, which it may not do if, if Ukraine is pulverized by Russian bombs. Uh, let's not forget what the Russian military has done in previous wars. So um, in the Russian-Chechen wars of the 1990s and early 2000s, um, 
the Chechen capital of Grozny was essentially demolished, uh, leveled to the ground like no other European city since World War II. Um, and uh, Russia assisted the Syrian government in a very similar operation in, um, in uh, the city of Aleppo in the ongoing conflict there. So I don't think anyone can be any doubt that, that Russia is prepared to commit um, horrific uh, human rights abuses in the form of uh, mass carpet bombing of Ukrainian cities. Uh, on the other hand, um, I certainly understand the argument that the um, involvement of NATO um, in providing overflights of Ukrainian territory and perhaps shooting down Russian planes could, could essentially turn this into the beginning of World War III and possibly open the door to a nuclear war. So um, I view in my capacity as a scholar that it's my responsibility not to advocate for positions that I, I feel are, are properly the problem of other experts. So I think what I would say in answer to your question is, if we bracket this question of air support for Ukraine, I think that it should be clear that everything else that the West can do to support Ukraine should be on the table. So that means providing Ukraine with whatever weapons, supplies, um, and money it needs to prosecute the war effort. And in addition, it also means um, a, uh, an extremely serious attempt to exclude Russia from, from um, the benefits of the world economy and ostracize it fully in the international system so that it begins to see that uh, its power as a major, its role as a major power has been compromised and um, its ability to um, conduct politics effectively in the international arena is being reduced because of its war in Ukraine. Um, at the moment, I would say that some steps have been made um, in the direction of achieving these goals, but perhaps not sufficient ones. So um, there's no doubt that the decisions that we've seen over the last week have, have been ratcheted up from the rather modest ones that President Biden announced um, right after the Russian uh, incursion into eastern Ukraine um, that, that set the stage for this current full-scale invasion. Um, nonetheless, uh, uh, there are other things that um, uh, could be done. So, um, for example, um, the, the process of sanctioning Russian individuals connected to the Putin government has been rather slow and haphazard, and for reasons that I think have not been fully made clear, um, figures close to Putin remain free to enter Western countries and conduct business there and purchase property there. So um, obvious examples would be um, Putin's uh, two adult daughters, um, not to mention his uh, companion, the former gymnast Kabayeva. So it should be, I think, an, an obvious goal for, for the United States, NATO, the EU, and, and their, their allies to deny access to, um, to the West, to all individuals who are closely linked to the Russian government, um, not only Putin and his family, but the, 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 the members of the Russian cabinet and their families, the members of the Russian parliament and their families, other individuals uh, who are so-called oligarchs and their families, uh, all these people should be prevented from enjoying the benefits of uh, the democratic and rule of law systems that exist in the West. Um, and the property should be frozen, and if legal means permit to do this, perhaps seized. Um, uh, we also have to face the problem that, that Russia is a major supplier of fossil fuels to the world. And in particular, it's very unfortunate that um, European countries led by Germany have chosen over the years not to diversify the supply of natural gas um, from Russia as they now 
um, seeing the folly of being dependent on a hostile foreign power for an essential resource. So I would hope that um, it would be possible in, in at least the short or medium term to, um, to limit as much as possible imports of fossil fuels from, the, from Russia and to um, thereby deny them the benefits of um, to the foreign exchange that arrive from those sales. That would entail, among other things, a very concerted effort by Europe to, to uh, import um, oil and gas from other sources. Um, so there are plenty of things that remain to be done for um, the Russian state and its officials to feel the full weight of international disapproval. Um, that isn't even to go into other questions about issues of diplomatic representation or exclusion of Russia from international forums. So, for example, I was I was disappointed to see that Interpol has not expelled Russia um, from Interpol. Russia has been um, abusing Interpol egregiously for years, as uh, current University of Toronto doctoral student Sarah Darsan has uh, written about um, to pursue its political opponents, um, much in the same way that the government of Turkey has done. Um, that alone um, should have given rise to some concerns about Russia's membership. Um, I think it is entirely proper for Western governments to try to, uh, to exclude Russia from as many international forums as possible stigmatize it and prevent it from influencing international politics. And I would hope that a very concerted policy uh, will be developed to bring about that result. Um, thank you, Dr. Light. You actually, you know, uh, summarize a green picture in, in Ukraine right now, and you, you know, talk about financial and some economic and, you know, institutional sanctioning. Um, and also we, uh, we see that you know, the NATO and other Western countries tried to stop Putin for this invasion. However, you know, we were not successful to, to doing so. So what are the lessons should we take away from the NATO's inability to deter Putin from attacking Ukraine? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think um, it's probably gonna take some time and careful analysis to answer it. Um, I do think that there was a certain kind of frustrating passivity about the Western response to the very evident Russian troop buildup. Um, so um, I, I think that the United States and other Western governments do need to answer the question of why some sanctions were not um, imposed on Russia immediately once it became evident that Russia was um, uh, conducting a military buildup that would enable it to, to invade Ukraine soon. Um, it's been suggested that uh, much more vigorous sanctions sooner might have deterred Putin from doing this. Now, I think in any kind of situation like this, we can't really know something like that with certainty because it would involve replaying history, which unfortunately is beyond our control as mortals. But um, I think that we have to go back to kind of the history of Russian interactions with uh, its neighbors over the last decade or so, or really one to two decades. And we can see that um, from Russia's point of view, it's achieved a lot of its aims in the post-Soviet region with relatively little pushback from the West um, and, um, and perhaps has drawn the conclusion not unreasonably that um, the West uh, will not do very much to stop it from doing what it wants. Um, so 
Um, it's um, sometimes forgotten that Ukraine is not the only country where Russia maintains troops against the will of the, the sovereign government of that state um, and essentially occupying portions of that country. So the other two that are most important to mention in this respect are uh, Georgia and Moldova. Um, and um, Georgia is um, partially occupied by Russian forces. Um, they are currently embedded in positions uh, very close to the capital of Tbilisi. Uh, Georgia has uh, two separatist regions that have been um, armed by the Russian military and um, essentially are extensions of Russian power. I'm referring to Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Um, Moldova has a similar region called Transnistria, which also is uh, host to uh, Russian forces. So um, there's that. And in addition, we've also seen a scandalous campaign of assassination by Russia against its opponents in Western countries. Um, there are too many cases to mention. Uh, only last year, I believe it was, a, um, a Chechen uh, opponent of Russia was assassinated in Berlin spectacularly in a public place. And um, we've seen sort of a remarkably passive and um, hesitant response from Western governments over the years. And unfortunately, I, I think that each, each such failure to respond creates a kind of cumulative impression that future responses will also be equally passive. And I, I believe that the conclusion that, um, that we can't avoid coming to is that the West has, um, first of all, underestimated the determination of Putin to uh, restore a kind of hegemony in the post-Soviet region and to restore Russia's standing as the dominant power in Europe. And also that it has prioritized um, the status quo and in particular opportunities for, for trade and commerce and lucrative financial dealings over its own geopolitical interests um, in a liberal order in Europe. Um, so that is a, a long-term failure that has to be acknowledged and hopefully not repeated. Um, I think we need to be asking ourselves very hard questions about what kinds of relationships is possible to have with hostile authoritarian regimes such as Russia, including in the economic realm. Um, that would include things such as the, the ability of uh, Western citizens to uh, work for these governments, uh, particularly former officials. So um, the most obvious example would be Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor of Germany, who is essentially working for the Russian state, I mean, in, indirectly, but he is working for, or has been working for the Nord Stream 2 consortium, which is a subsidiary of Gazprom, which is a state-controlled enterprise. So, you know, he is a paid agent of the Russian government, um, but he's not alone in that, right? And um, we only have to look at the Trump administration in the United States, President Trump himself, who has rather murky business dealings in Russia, um, his henchman, Paul Manafort, who was um, working for the Yanukovych dictatorship in Ukraine. Um, you know, at some point we have to think about what we stand for as democratic states and how we can protect the international order and our own domestic political order um, from this kind of manipulation by, by authoritarian regimes. So there's that. Um, I, guess we could, I guess we can say or summarize that I would say there's both a long-term failure to contain Russia um, or to, to push back effectively against Russian aggression and and then kind of a short-term failure to respond effectively during the months leading up to the full-scale of invasion of Ukraine that began at the end of February. Um, thank you, Dr. Light. So you mentioned Georgia and Moldova, and um, they are former Soviet Union Republic countries. So when they look at Ukraine, 
do you think they also are concerned about the similar fate the Ukrainians are facing now? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I know more about the situation in Georgia. And in recent weeks, we, we've seen a kind of um, seesawing in the policy of Georgia on this uh, conflict in Ukraine, um, initially um, apparently trying to avoid taking a position um, that would offend the Russian government. And then, um, then um, surprisingly, perhaps, uh, uh, voting with the um, uh, UN General Assembly um, uh, resolution to condemn Russia, as well as uh, submitting a, an application to join the European Union following Ukraine's own application. So I think my interpretation is the following. Um, going back to the point that I began with about the consequences of Russian victory in Ukraine, um, if that scenario comes to pass, uh, every state in the post-Soviet region will feel that it is undefended against Russian aggression and that they could meet the same fate as Ukraine. And I think it's inevitable that in that situation, they would essentially be forced to or feel forced to, um, to, to um, take a more pro-Russian line and to, to accept a higher level of Russian influence over the domestic policy as well as international security policy. So one reading of this um, Georgian response is that they're sufficiently worried by the situation that they feel that they have to try to prevent that from happening. Um, that they, you know, they also need to, um, they also need to do what they can to avoid uh, a scenario in which Russia wins in Ukraine. Um, and I would imagine that a similar, uh, I would imagine that Moldova faces a similar calculus. Um, although I know that country. Yeah, also, you know, like inside Ukraine, there are Ukrainian people that actually millions of people internally displaced uh, in Ukraine. Also, we see reports that more than a million people fled their country yeah. and abandoned their homes uh, under Russian bombardments of the key cities. So do you think what measures should be employed to help Ukrainians who have been forced from their homes? Well, as you correctly said, um, there are two categories of people in that heartbreaking situation. Um, one are internally displaced people, IDPs, um, of whom I should mention there were already a significant number um, ever since the beginning of uh, the Russian-sponsored war in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Um, and also now um, we've just seen this rapidly exploding population of um, Ukrainian refugees in Europe now totaling a, a good million, I understand. So um, I think that uh, the, those in Ukraine need to be given immediate help to survive. Um, their legal status is not specifically a problem at the moment since they're Ukrainian citizens inside Ukraine. Um, those in European countries need, of course, immediate survival assistance, but they also need to be provided with a status to allow them to live and operate normally. Um, we don't know when, if ever, they'll be able to go home, and that will depend in part on the outcome of the war. Um, if if there is a Russian victory, I don't think those people will want to go back to an occupied, dismembered, and Putin-controlled Ukraine. They'll want to stay or go on elsewhere, and they will all need to be um, resettled. Um, it, it may not be quite the moment to think about their long-term future, but certainly um, any kind of uh, policy to provide them with uh, emergency um, uh, temporary protected status in Europe and the ability to, to live, work, and access social services in the European Union 
um, would be uh, would be justified. And one would hope um, that friends of Ukraine, such as Canada and the United States, would adopt similar policies. And um, perhaps, um, to the extent feasible, would um, take in some of those who are currently um, uh, displaced and living in uh, European countries and need someplace to to go. Um, so, it's it's an emerging problem, and exactly what will need to be done in the long term is going to depend on future contingencies, particularly the outcome of the war in, in Ukraine. But uh, at the moment, um, all those people need to be given uh, a clear legal status and, and help. Okay, wonderful. Uh, another question is that, you know, considering how Putin has reacted to Ukraine's will to join NATO, uh, and how do you assess the prospect of Finland and Sweden joining NATO? How would Putin's aggression affect NATO's future plans for enlargement? Yes, um, that's an important issue that that is gradually getting more attention in, in the North American media. So Sweden and Finland have both historically been neutral. Um, in Sweden's case, as a matter of longstanding policy going back to the 19th century, um, in Finland's case, um, it reflects the, the awkward and difficult position that Finland was in during the Cold War when it was uh, under a great deal of pressure from the Soviet Union to, if not actually join the Soviet bloc, to at least to, to be an accommodating neighbor. Um, I also think that in both countries, particularly in Sweden, there is a strong tradition of support for the non-aligned movement and um, a kind of valorization of, of um, support for peace and opposition to military alliances, and particularly on the left or the left side of the political spectrum. So it's quite remarkable that we now see much more open discussion of NATO membership um, in both those countries. So in particular in Finland, a poll was just released that shows that for the first time ever, a majority of Finns now support joining NATO. Um, and that's up from uh, quite a low percentage only a few years ago. Um, in Sweden, I believe there's now a plurality of people um, saying they would like to join NATO. So more saying they would like to join than saying they don't want to join, although not an outright majority. Um, and, um, you know, both those states, as I mentioned, have um, had very threatening exchanges with the Russian government in recent months that have only sort of, unfortunately for the Russian government, that some of its, some of its behavior is highly self-destructive. And I think this is an example where, uh, the you know, the, the the tone and content of these diplomatic messages to these governments was so, um, pardon me, so offensive and so threatening that it only perhaps accentuated their the impression that uh, Russia is dangerous to them. So it's entirely possible that we will see um, them apply for NATO membership in the near future, although um, who knows, and I don't have a crystal ball. Um, the other the other side of the Baltic, the three Baltic republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are also um, feeling a great deal of pressure at this point. point. And um, there are a couple of points to mention there. One is that they are the only other, um, they are the only post-Soviet states that have joined NATO and the EU. <clears throat> and they have a long history of um, strong suspicion of uh, Russia's revanchist intentions in the region. And particularly all of them, and I think perhaps particularly Estonia, but all of them to one degree or another have been quite vocal in saying that um, Russia is an aggressive power, that it, it could invade them, and that they would like more support from NATO. Um, so mm -hmm. NATO has gradually begin, begun introducing some troops in the Baltic for the first time since the end of the Cold War and their, their NATO accession. Um, and I would imagine that they will want 
um, more NATO presence in their countries to protect them from the eventuality of a Russian, a Russian invasion. Particularly since, um, particularly in the case of Eastern Estonia, which has a large Russian community or a large Russian speaking community, um, Putin has at some points sort of indicated that he sees that region as part of what he calls the Russian the Russian world, Ruski Mir, Russian world, which is um, a region that he um, believes is Rus rightfully part of the Russian Federation or at least rightfully under his influence. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Light, it was a great conversation having, and thanks for coming and thanks for your time and your uh, insightful answer to my questions. Thank you. My pleasure, Stuart. <laughs>